0: It's always interesting to be introduced. And, uh, you know, that that was something I wrote basically <laughs> from some bio that it might be need might need some updating by now, but it's always interesting to see how it lands. I mean, if I don't like it, it's my fault. <laughs> so I can rewrite it. But actually, I, I kind of liked it. There are some okay things there. And uh, as I said, and as you were just reminded, I'm coming to you from... Flagstaff, Arizona, here at 7,000 feet elevation at the base of a sacred mountain known as Do-o-o-sh-備 in the Diné or Navajo language, also known as in Hopi. And I'm fortunate that I can see that mountain from my backyard. It's covered with snow still. That's the highest peak in Arizona, nearly 13,000 feet high. People think of Arizona as the desert, and, and it is. I'm in the desert in a way, although it's ponderosa pine forest and aspen trees here. But it's very dry. And uh, I think a lot of you are probably, how many of you are on the East Coast? Why well, you bet me? Yeah, most everyone on my on the first page of my screen. More people, I'm going to scroll through and check you out a little bit. So is the sun still up? Is it setting? the sun setting now? Starting to go down? Yeah, it's late, late afternoon, mid to late afternoon here. Very windy here today, which is typical this time of year and this in the high country here, and, and some of the wind seems to have gotten inside me in my mind and heart. I'm feeling windy today and kind of scattered and, and not really settling very well. I noticed a lot of emotions in, in there as part of that, so I have this feeling my talk might ramble a bit, but uh, maybe there'll be some sort of common thread in there. Maybe you'll forgive me if it does. I was reflecting uh, as I was thinking about what I might say today. About the past year, I just finished teaching a retreat for IMS with someone, uh, a colleague, Rebecca Bradshaw, and uh, a new colleague, a colleague, Don Scott. And it's a retreat I teach almost every April with Rebecca and and usually one or two other people. And and it was the first online retreat I taught last year near the start of uh, when we couldn't go to, I was supposed to go to IMS to teach it. (laughs) And I didn't think last year, I I probably didn't cross my mind that I'd be teaching it again uh, via Zoom in this online format. It's been quite a year you know, the decision, because I'm also a guiding teacher at IMS, so I was part of the decision to, to close the place a year ago. Now I'm part of the discussion about whether or not we might be able to open. I don't know, what's CIMC thinking maybe to open in the fall? Talking about it probably, uh, maybe, you know, and and there is some shift. It feels like things might be moving towards things like that happening, but IMS is going to be careful and slow, probably CIMC as well, you know, not in a rush to open, wait till that feels really like a good time. So much has gone on in the past year, and you know, this pandemic has, has not only affected us in terms of, of the, the tragic loss of life and, and all of the other, you know, job losses and all the stresses and strains it's put on so many, But it's also focused our attention on so many inequities in in here in the States and and worldwide and ongoing injustices, the pain of systemic injustice and systemic racism that permeates so much of the culture and institutions here, the strife and division that's characterized these days and the unbelievable violence just recently so much. And at times, you know, I I notice in my own heart, maybe for some of you, I I feel like there are changes coming and I can feel hopeful at other times. It seems kind of hopeless. All these different emotions that pass through the mind and the heart. and, And there does seem to be a heightened sense of, suffering one has to be careful about how much news to consume because there's a lot of not very good news out there <laughs> sometimes there's some good news but everything seems to be in question and sometimes maybe everything in in our own lives in our own minds and hearts feels like it's it's in question maybe even our relationship to this practice gets called into question, we can wonder what, what does this have to do with anything, me sitting quietly, sitting silently? You know, stress, struggle, suffering in all its various forms is really at the heart of what the Buddha taught, you know, a relationship to that an understanding of its causes and what's going on there. When the Buddha spoke directly to this, it famously, he said once, now and before, I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. Which is kind of a a shorthand for the teaching of the four noble truths, the noble truth of of dukkha, of suffering, truth of cause of suffering, truth of the release of that cause and the path that leads to the end of suffering, struggle, and strain. And this is really what the Buddha always was interested in teaching and talking about. And it's said that the Buddha was initially moved to teach out of the energy of compassion, compassion that arose in the heart in the, mind of this person who'd had this awakening experience and and surveyed the world and saw beings trying to be happy trying to find happiness or contentment or peace or whatever you words you might use to describe that experience just say trying to find lasting happiness real happiness and at the same time doing the exact things that would cause them to to suffer to leading them in the opposite direction this misplaced energy with this beautiful movement of heart wanting to be happy and and this is called buddha's maha great karuna compassion great compassion seeing this and move to offer some something that might bring some understanding to what's going on here and it's good to remind ourselves that all of the stress and struggles that we get up to in our search for happiness and all the shenanigans that others get up to born of this wish to be happy and it's a beautiful happy happiness the movement of heart towards contentment happiness is a beautiful wish and something we share with all beings but there's a lot of confusion about how to how to realize that in, in life out there in the world and it's hard to see sometimes, you know, people get up to all kinds of really unbelievable stuff in, in this search for happiness. And a lot of it seems to really just cause themselves and others to suffer so much. One thing we discover in our practice in the meditation is that the more that we study our own mind, body, heart, that whole interplay. At the same time, we're studying the minds, bodies, and hearts of all beings, all human beings anyway. You know, when we all have our own stories and our own versions of, of what life has been for us, we see through those lenses. But that which we share and the ways in which we are the same, and in fundamental ways, it's far greater than our differences. And so there are differences, of course, and yet in the, at the core, we all have a mind and a body, and we all know joy and sorrow, pleasure and pain. We all live with the changing, unpredictable nature of life. This basic existential truths well, are there for all of us. And and so when we start to connect through this practice and through meditation with our own inner turmoil and confusion and struggles and, and suffering that is sometimes there, it's not every, not always there, it's not the only thing, of course. Then we are connecting to what's going on for others. and And this, in my mind at least, is the energy behind awakening the same quality of compassion, this karuna compassion that the Buddha uh, had informed the Buddha's decision to decide to try and teach something, because he didn't want to do it at first. He said, oh, no one's going to get it. It's just going to be vexing for me. I don't want to do it. He was persuaded to look and and see what's going on. So this relationship to the the noble truth of dukkha. That when the Buddha said, "I teach suffering, the end of suffering." In order to find the end of suffering, you have to understand the causes of suffering and release those. And so, this is this is we um, really look at the heart of things, and and we start to touch the depth and breadth of this kind of insecurity and unreliability that are the, the characteristics of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, born of change and unpredictability and we start to see the size of this that this is informs our lives it's embedded into the fabric of our existence and it's it's not bad news but we need to have a real and practical workable and useful relationship to this understanding bhikkhu bodhi once said this the great translator and teacher whether in the form of pain frustration distress Suffering reveals the basic insecurity of the human condition. It throws before our awareness in a way we cannot evade the vast gulf stretching between our ingrained expectations and the possibilities for their fulfillment in a world never fully susceptible to domination by our will. He's brilliant and uses kind of dense language sometimes. Basically, he's saying, you know, we don't get, we aren't in charge (laughs) here. We're we're not able to just decide to have things be a certain way. And so there's this, there is this thread of, of vulnerability, of fragility, of unreliability, of unsatisfactoriness, even that that is, even with beautiful, pleasant, joyful experiences because they're subject to change, they don't last. And so we can't ask any one of those things, any one particular experience to be the source of our lasting happiness because it won't last. It's subject to change. And so opening to this in in a real way then leads, leads us to seek a reliable path to that might lead to a kind of contentment or peace or a deep kind of happiness that's not so much dependent on the conditions of life being any particular way. But this is a, this is a, this is a dance here, staying in balance with this opening to this truth and, and not feeling overwhelmed by it because we can sometimes look around and it seems like I've had this image. It's like this huge wave miles high it's just about to break constantly feels like that sometimes and it can feel overwhelming and, and we have to stay balanced in the face of that and not lose our connection to joy and wonder and awe and the beauty of things because we'll lose heart and, and we won't be able to continue walking the path so we have to be able to find a balance there, and sometimes I think it's good to step out of the details of our own life and take a break from all of the information that's coming at us constantly online and in through the media, and shift our, our shift our view for a while to a larger frame and, and see. You know, there's there's a lot to life that's mysterious and incredible. I mean, sometimes I I love I live in a place here. There's a famous observatory here, the Lowell Observatory. It's just walking distance from where I live, and uh, there was there was Pluto, the planet Pluto. I guess it's been demoted. I don't know if it got replanetized. It's um, but it was discovered up there. <laughs> And it's an ongoing working astron- uh, observatory. And uh, part of why it's located here is because at this high altitude, it's a dark sky, fairly small town. And, and so there's lots of stars when, when the conditions are good. It's a good place to look into the space. And, and I love to do that. And any one of you who's spent any time with me on retreat, I often talk about stuff going on. and You know, just right now, can, maybe you can kind of feel... This planet is spinning. Right now, it's, it's spinning. We're spinning backwards away from the setting sun, it's spinning us away from the sun that's about to go down. And it's spinning that way, and it's also spinning in this huge circle around the sun. And the sun is a star. There's a star out there. I can see the light from that star that's coming in through my window. That nearest star takes the light from the sun eight and a half minutes to reach the earth. So we don't know what's going on with the sun right now. Might have gone out. Maybe it stopped. (laughs) It's going to stop someday or it's going to explode or something. And then, you know, it's vast. (laughs) It's like, that's the nearest star, right? I mean, the nearest star besides that, it takes the light for a little over four years to get here. And with these incredible telescopes, they look at galaxies that are 13 and a half billion light years away. That means we're looking 13 and a half billion years into the past. Because that's when that light left those galaxies to come here. It's mind boggling. here back on the earth in the northern hemisphere in flagstaff and in new england i know spring is starting to come on are the leaves coming out yet bulbs are coming up we don't have leaves on the trees yet here but well we do some of them not on the aspens or the oaks but some of the other shrubs are starting to leaf out and bulbs are coming up and And I love birds and animals and I'm a, I am am a bird watcher so bear in mind bird watchers are kind of crazy and I'm one of them so apologies for, for anything that flows out from that madness in my mind but but migratory birds come through here and I have places for them to get water and food in my yard and different ones show up and I I look for them I, they're like my friends coming back each year in the last couple days, uh, a bird, these birds called evening grosbeaks have been coming, and they're like a, a giant finch. They have huge bills, and they're uh, they are very beautiful. And uh, there's been a flock of maybe 35 or 40 of them that have been hanging around. I can hear them early in the morning, and they come down to get water and get some seeds, and they won't stay. They'll, they're going to pass through, and there are other birds that have been showing up. And I love seeing them. And they do feel like old friends. I don't think they feel that way, but they appreciate the food and the water. (laughs) I recently heard an interview on the radio with uh, an author uh, and researcher, naturalist named Scott Wiedensahl and he's, uh, he's especially interested in birds, and he spent decades studying migratory birds. And there were some amazing things from this uh, his interview. I'm going to share a few things with you. So he's been doing field work and studying migration. And, and the scale of bird migration is, worldwide is, is incredible. There are billions, actually, of birds migrating annually in the spring and the fall. And uh, there's a a big migratory route on the East Coast, um, for those of you who are there, the Mid-Atlantic Flyway Corridor. And um, I didn't realize this, but he pointed out that a lot of birds, most birds who migrate, migrate at night. It's the air's cooler and the uh, calmer. The wind, you know, here, this windiness it dies down at night, usually, and there's fewer predators around. And and uh, worldwide, there's hundreds of millions to billions of birds flying overhead at nighttime. <laughs> and they're probably flying over. Some of you, are, I know, are in Boston and Cambridge in that area, the big metropolises and the big cities. And, and maybe there's some of them might be starting to fly overhead right now <laughs> heading north. You know, it would be unbelievable if we could see it. In the old days, apparently people who were studying these things would would look with binoculars at the moon and see birds passing in front of the moon. And that was before radar and things where they could study them that way. They saw them flying in front of, huge flocks flying in front of the moon. <laughs> I'd heard about this bird and this this man spoke about them, Scott saw it's a, it's a kind of shore bird. Bird that you would see uh, walking along on the beach or mud flats and, and getting food out of the out of the where the waves come in along the shore of lakes and uh, the, in the ocean. It's called a bar-tailed godwit, and um, they make the longest nonstop migration of any land bird that anyone has studied. So they fly. They do a seven thousand mile non-stop flight from Western Alaska to New Zealand. And they do it in one go. And they they don't they aren't a swimming bird. They aren't a bird that can rest on the water, so they have to fly nonstop. And it can take up to about two, 11 or twelve days to do this. They just fly for eleven or twelve days. And apparently they they do a thing that a lot of migratory birds do, and I think um, some sea mammals can do this too, where half of their brain goes to sleep for a few seconds and then it switches. And then the other one goes to sleep and they go back and forth and that's how they get some rest. And so they have to just like eat. They have to really eat a lot before they take off to fly. And so they eat nonstop for, they start binge feeding in in the late summer and they, they increase their, they double their weight and, and are, they're, they have 50% fat <laughs> body 50% of their body weight is fat before they take off and um they they in their heart and flight wing muscles increase mass by 50% and their digestive organs basically go away stop functioning altogether and they just burn fat for that flight and they um and then when they get back, they get to Australia or New Zealand, then they start feeding and their digestive organs come back. And then they do the, the same thing again in the, in the spring, in the fall. That's a, they do this twice a year. And they're, they live, apparently they can live up to around 30 years. And they do this, they fly around 18,000 miles a year. So in their lifetime, if they live a longer, you know, 25 or 30 year life, they fly the equivalent of the distance to the moon and back in their lifetime. (laughs) I just just find it amazing that, you know, that's just one story. (laughs) What kinds of amazing things going on in the world around us, outside of, along with our own lives and all of our preoccupations and all of the things that we, we get focused on. We lose sight that it's not all there is to life. And so I love hearing stories like this and and there's so much more one could could find to, to inspire awe and appreciation in the mind and heart, at least for me, and and I love seeing the different birds and my gross speaks and they've come. They don't come every year because their migration migration path changes. They're kind of fickle a bit. But um, but I've also been I feel my heart breaking sometimes because um, I some like last year I didn't see any of them. This year there there's some have come back, but. You know, there are studies that have shown that since 1970, somewhere overall about 30% of all songbirds in North America have disappeared due to uh, loss of habitat, loss of places to get food and climate change and the pressures on the environment that are coming. And That's overall. Some individual species are much greater decline. So my evening grow speaks that I love so much. It's up to about 75%. Decline since 1970 in their numbers, really going down. In one of these years, they're not going to be any of them coming through here. About well, it's more than 170 years now ago, I think. The uh, writer. Philosopher Henry David Thoreau spent a lot of time in New England there, Walden Palm, just west of Boston. He he said, in wildness is the preservation of the world. That long ago, he said that. And in the book, Walden, as he's writing about his time in the woods, he said, we need the tonic of wildness to wade sometimes in Martians where the bittern That's a bird, bittern, and the meadow hen lurk. To hear the booming of the snipe, to smell the whispering sedge, where only some wilder and more solitary fowl builds her nest, where the mink crawls with its belly close to the ground. Describing the things he observed there when it was a much wilder place. Wildness, you know, places of wildness are fewer and fewer these days. And in our modern lives, especially if we do live in an urban setting, we get very far away from wildness sometimes. And the day-to-day pressures of just making our way in life and figuring out how to take care of things and feed ourselves and meet our responsibilities and you know it's understandable that keeps thoughts of wildness out of our minds and hearts it's understandable of course but I think there's a real toll that this loss of wildness is taking on our minds and hearts I think maybe there's something essential and profound that is in danger of getting lost internally and of course externally both. There's an author that I, I love named Barry Lopez. He's a, a naturalist and kind of a natural philosopher. And he's spent time living in a lot of different places around the world with different peoples. And one time he spent living in the very far north uh, among the folks, the native folks who live there. the Eskimo people at that time. This is a short quotation. We have irrevocably separated ourselves from the world that wild animals occupy. We've turned all animals and elements of the natural world into objects. We, We manipulate them to serve the complicated ends of our destiny. Eskimos do not grasp this separation easily and have difficulty imagining themselves entirely removed from the world of animals. For many of them, to make this separation is analogous to cutting oneself off from light or water. It is hard to imagine how to even do it. You know, when we've learned to live with this separation, and we can do it but I think it does come with a cost. And so maybe we can find wildness in different ways. We can go to wild places, perhaps. Maybe we find it inside our own mind and heart. An author named Rick Bass once wrote this. If it's wild to your own heart, protect it, preserve it, love it and fight for it and dedicate yourself to it. Whether it's a mountain range, your partner, or even your job. It doesn't matter if it's wild to anyone else. If it's what makes your heart sing, if it's what makes your day soar like a hawk in the summertime, then focus on it because for sure it's wild. And if it's wild, it'll mean you're still free no matter where you are. look and see what what is wild, what is untamed in our own mind and heart. And of course, we talk about taming the wildness of the mind and in in a way that's, of course, important as far as understanding. We we don't want to tame all our wildness, though. We want to tame the, the mind that is just under the influences of unskillful energies, of greed, hatred, and illusion. That's one thing, but There's also a kind of wildness, untamed part that we need to nurture. And that's part of what keeps us whole, I think. And I I realize, you know, I feel like I take a chance whenever I talk in ways like this, because, you know, the last thing I would want is for anyone to feel grief or despair or my words to take someone into to emotions that are hard to be with but, and I hope you can hear that I speak from love that that's where this is coming from today and that and I'm speaking to myself as much as anyone else who might be listening right now and speaking from this quality of love and friendship and respect and care and all of those good things I want to bring these the spirit of these two words in the Pali language, uh, language from the time of the Buddha, the words hiri and uttapa. And I like to translate these as um, kind of wise remorse or a skillful kind of regret, hiri, and conscious conscience or concern for uttapa. So Wiser remorse and concern. And the Buddha once called these qualities Sukha, Loka, Pala. Sukha means bright. Loka means world. Pala means guardian. Bright guardians of the world. Sukha, Loka, Pala. I love Pali. Beautiful sound. So these are energies that, that are guardians of the world, guardians of our own minds. And Sharon Salzberg once said this about them. What is really meant is a very beautiful and delicate sense of conscience. It's like an extreme sensitivity where something inside us just pulls back from harming or hurting. It's a beautiful movement born out of caring deeply for ourselves and others. A sense of conscience isn't the same as being moralistic or judging ourselves or others. Rather, it is developed through the process of having a commitment to care and to compassion. I like that That sense that it's born of care and compassion and deep concern, a sense of a, a wise kind of conscience. Mbiko Bodhi again said, by cultivating these qualities within ourselves, we not only accelerate our own progress along the path to deliverance, but also contribute our share toward the protection of the world. Given the intricate interconnections that hold between all living forms, to make Hiriya and Otapa the guardians of our own mind is to make ourselves guardians of the world. Like that sense that we might become the guardians of the world. And that's really, you know, the practice flows from inside to out. You know, it's got to be an active, connected thing. And so I think of these qualities of wise remorse and conscience as as good friends. One teacher I know calls them her spiritual friends, and, and they're friends who ask us to pay attention and to look and see what we're doing and how we're living and the choices we're making. And and they're going to say sometimes things that are difficult for us to hear. And and they're going to say them because they care about us and because they love us. They want us to be whole and free and happy, really happy. And so They allow us to look at our actions and the motivations and energies that give rise to them from places of of compassion and clarity of seeing and clear vision. And they help us to relate to times when we may have acted unskillfully because we're pretty much guaranteed to until maybe we're fully enlightened. Maybe that doesn't ever happen. And they help us to not fall into the traps of guilt or shame enable us to separate the intentions that give rise to our actions from the impact, because sometimes we'll have good intentions, but the impact of what we do doesn't, does cause harm. And so we can start to actually see these things. Once the Buddha was teaching his son, Rahula, who became a monk and he he asked him, Rahula, what is a mirror for? And Rahula said, it's for reflection. And the Buddha said, okay, Rahula, in the same way, bodily actions, verbal actions, even mental actions are to be done with repeated reflection. Whenever you want to do a bodily action, a verbal action, you should reflect on it thus. This action I want to do, would it lead to self-affliction? Would it lead to the affliction of others or to both? Would it be an unskillful action with painful consequences and painful results? And if on reflection you see that it would be unskillful, then you should absolutely not do it. It's not fit for you to do. But if you reflect and see that it would not cause any affliction, then it would be skillful. That it would lead to pleasant beneficial consequences, then it's fit for you to do it. And he said, look at verbal actions. Look even at actions in the mind in the same way. And then he said, you should look at this before you do something, while you're doing it, and after you do it, and see, did it, because you might not be, you might have the best motivations, and then afterwards you see, oh, I didn't see that, this caused harm, let me not do this again, so we can pay attention in these ways, and live a more conscious life, and and then if we do assess our actions and we look afterwards and we see, oh, there's this sting of regret and, and there is remorse, oh, I didn't know, but it led to harm. Then these energies of hiri and otapa, these bright guardians of the world, these spiritual friends can come to our aid and they can help us to take responsibility without guilt or shame to see when we've made mistakes, to make amends if we can. Change the course of our lives, change our course of our actions if we can, when we can. The role of friendship in all kinds of different ways. I spoke about these energies as uh, guardians and protections and, and spiritual friends. The role of friendship is seen as essential in the Buddha's path, and it shows up in so many different ways. Mindfulness is is a friend. My <laughs> mindfulness is my good friend. Love, my friend, mindfulness, because it opens. It's the key that opens the door to everything. It makes everything possible. I'm seeing my picture. The sun is. It's found a way through. It's got this band of light. That light is came from the sun eight and a half minutes ago. <laughs> so the sun was still shining then. And it probably is going to continue. And if it does go out, we'll know it pretty soon. And things will become really different really fast. And Friendship shows up in... Um, in the community of sangha so we've come together this evening we're creating sangha here and maybe some of you are are part of the cimc sangha do you think of yourselves that way who feels that connection of sangha to cimc and the teachers and the community there it's such a beautiful thing sangha is this refuge it's one of the the refuges we go to the sangha for refuge to Find refuge in the community of like-minded practitioners, and and we so we come together, and there's this heart kind of heart alignment, this shared intention, this interest in cultivating wisdom and love and compassion and clarity of seeing, and and so sangha rises, and and we all see like I'd love, I mean I'd rather see you in person, let me tell you, but. The Zoom thing is not bad because it's like you're in your little windows. Plus, I love seeing the cats walk by sometimes and dogs are getting petted and tail will come by. And I don't have any cat tails here. And I travel too much to have a cat in the house or a dog, but I love that part of it. So these are like these windows you're all looking. We're looking through our own windows and our own lives and our own history and our own personal stories where we're looking into commonality into something that's more timeless and universal and that which we share, no matter what our individual stories and personal histories are. Windows, each of you looking into this room that we all are in. So we create this Sangha over and over and over through this shared intention. And friendship shows up in all kinds of ways, as I'm saying, as I said, as we walk past. So there's the friendship that develops with our teachers and with our peers and, and uh, our good friends and comrades that we practice with and share this journey along this interesting path. And this relationship that's based on shared ethical values and this Orientation around understanding, the pursuit of awakening, however we might hold that. And this is called kalyana mitata, spiritual friendship, and kalyana mita. Mitta, Mitta, the word means friend, kalyana wise or admirable or virtuous or noble. It's noble friendship of uh, those we practice with. It lifts us up. I know it lifts me up. And I can use lifting up, let me tell you. We all need it, I think. The Buddha in one teaching said, with regard to external factors, I don't envision any other single factor, like admirable friendship, as doing so much for a person in training who has not yet attained the heart's goal, but remains intent on the unsurpassed safety from bondage. This is one way he expressed, who's who's on this journey to awaken him to freedom, to liberation. One who is a friend with admirable people abandons what is unskillful and develops what is skillful. And there was this famous exchange between uh, the Buddha and his attendant Ananda, who was his cousin also. And Ananda said, oh, Buddha, blessed one, (laughs) I say that I declare that uh, spiritual friendship is is half of the holy life. The holy life was the way they talked about the life of a renunciate, a nun or a monk or someone who's dedicated to the path and this practice. And the Buddha said, don't say that, Ananda, don't say that. Good friendship, admirable, admirable companionship, wise camaraderie is the whole of the holy life. When a practitioner has good, admirable, wise people as friends, companions, and comrades, they can be expected to develop and pursue the Noble, noble Eightfold Path. So I have to cut this short. We have lots about friendship. <laughs> there are seven qualities, that the Buddha said, uh, are the qualities of a good friend. They give what is beautiful, they give what is hard to give. They do what is hard to do. They endure what is hard to endure. They reveal their secrets to you and they keep your secrets. When misfortune strikes, they don't abandon you. When you're down and out, they don't look down on you. A friend endowed with these qualities is a friend to be cultivated by anyone wanting a true friend. I love this some of these things they give what is beautiful that's how it starts out we could think of all kinds of things but I think a simple way that I relate to that is is a friend gives the gift of friendship how often do we think of that as a gift I was struck by this once not so long ago I was I went shopping grocery shopping with a friend and and uh, I finished first it was a colleague someone I teach with and we were we were teaching a long retreat and we had a chance to go to a store we had a part of a day off and we, we were picking up some some things we wanted to have and and i was i was waiting for my friend and i i could have felt impatient and sometimes i probably might have felt impatient or restless but at the moment i just thought oh i'm waiting for my friend it's so great that i have a friend to wait for you know this this sense of This is a beautiful thing that we we can give that gift and we can receive that gift from our friends. And some of those things from that list, you know, would we go out of our way for our friend when it's not easy for us? It doesn't suit our mood? Or if our friend is doing something unskillful, will we let them know? Would they do it? Would we be enough trust that we would be open that they could tell us this? Would we invite this? I invite my friends to tell me when I'm, if I'm blowing it or getting off track, I want them to tell me, even if it's painful, I'll take the pain. You know, are we trustworthy? Can we confide in our friends and, and know that they won't share that? And can they confide in us and trust us to keep their secrets and, and when, what if we are down and out? <laughs> you know, do we have a friend who we know isn't going to look down on us, that the couch is there for us if we need a couch? It be hard to stick by someone who's having a hard time. We can, it's almost this recoiling from that as though it will bring us down or will be seen as weak or somehow identified with them too much or something. So It takes extra compassion, extra courage, the courageous part of compassion to stick around when things are not going well, not abandon a friend in their time of need. And then in the long run, the best friendship that we develop through this practice is friendship with ourselves, the friendship that we develop with our own mind and heart. I'm gonna read this quotation actually. This is from a teacher, Tibetan teacher, Karma Yeshe Rabge. What is befriending yourself? It's a practice whereby, whereby we have compassion for ourselves. We understand that we are going to make mistakes, and when we do, instead of blaming ourselves, we are kind and caring. We don't look to blame ourselves or others. We understand that this is life. We learn from our mistakes, and we move on. We view our situation in a mindful way. This allows us to accept whatever we are going through without judgment. We're not suppressing or exaggerating the situation. We're viewing it through compassionate, caring eyes. The more we are able to open up to our human condition, the more we are able to have compassion for ourselves and for others. If we don't have compassion for ourselves, how can we have real compassion for others? We cannot give what we have what we don't have. We cannot give what we don't have. So become your own best friend and stop fighting this imperfect world. Become your own best friend. And through this practice, we discover over time that we are befriending our own mind and heart. And, and, you know, when I started this practice, I would not have said that my mind was my friend. I would have probably said it was my enemy if someone had asked me that at that time. I think I would have said that. I felt like I was in contention with my own mind and heart. But I can say to you truly now, today, that my own mind and heart is my best friend a true ally and friend. And that's not a small thing to be able to say, especially if you see where I started. It's not small at all. So I'm going to end uh, with this poem from a book that a friend of mine put together recently. It's called The First Free Women. And it's um, by Matty Weingast. It's interpretations of, of poems of the early nuns. Uh, It's his own interpretations of poems from the Terigatta. I just love his his versions. They're not the most literal, but they capture something essential for me at least. And this is from a nun whose name was Mitta, which means friend, so that's an appropriate name for this nun. She's talking about herself. This is kind of her enlightenment poem in a way. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen, I have followed this path of friendship to its end, and I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. I I have followed this path of friendship. That was her description of of her practice, the path of friendship. I have followed it to its end, and I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. So let's just uh, sit quietly here for a minute or so, and I'll ring, ring my chimes again. Thank you so much for uh, coming this evening. It's great to see you, especially I see Steve and Susan and Sue, and I can't see you all, but hi, hi to those of you who I know. Hi, Sue, how are you? And uh, those that I don't know, Linda, and um, yeah, I'm going to miss you. But if I missed you, it's not because I don't love you. So I wish you all well, and uh, yeah, go, go kindly